Thank you for joining us here once again on diversity and inclusion. We have an amazing, amazing show for you guys. I actually had the fantastic and wonderful opportunity to talk to one of my artistic idols. He's the Milwaukee-born, four-time platinum recording artist, lead singer of Arrested Development. He is a Grammy award-winning songwriter and he's really involved with the community and we really appreciate everything that he's doing. So enjoy our talk. Okay, wonderful. Okay, so speech, thank you so much for joining us today. I know things are probably pretty hectic for you, but uh, I do really appreciate the time, brother. Yeah. Okay. So let's begin. Um, I'm curious to find out a little bit about your musical influences. Sure. Um, you know, honestly, I've been influenced by it so much. Yeah. When I was when I was younger, I used to listen to a lot of rock music, mm-hmm. um, like Kiss and Queen, and um, you know the like, Chicago. And then I got a little bit older, and I started falling in love with R&B music like um, Cameo, yeah, Spinners, Marvin Gaye, yes, uh, Ray, Ray Parker Jr. and Radio. Mm-hmm. Um, and then as I got even older from that, I started falling in love with hip hop. Yes, and that was everything from Sugar Hill Gang to you know Treacherous Three. Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, um, you know, and then of course a little later than that, Run DMC and LL. So all of these things were very influential in, the, in what I would construct as what, what I consider great, great music. Oh, definitely. And one of the things actually that strikes me about you and the rest of development is your propensity to practice, you know, gratitude and thankfulness, not only for the present moment, but for the ancestors. And so I'm just curious to find out, you know, what do you do now to practice gratitude on a daily basis? Um, For me personally, I'm in a constant uh, state of mind that Mm -hmm. the ancestors have sacrificed everything they had for us to be where we are. Mm-hmm. And so I feel this deep sense of not only gratitude, but in my opinion, all gratitude results in actions yes. that, that strive to um, show a sense of homage mm-hmm. to whoever you're grateful for. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very grateful. I mean, you know, no one gets to choose the era they will live in. Yes. And we happen to be born in an era where we cannot honestly say that we would be living the lives we are living on the good side of our lives without the horror Mm -hmm. and the pain and perseverance and the strength of our ancestors. Mm -hmm. So maybe more than even other people who were born in other eras, we have no excuse to suggest that our ancestors did not pave the way for us because they clearly did. Mm -hmm. So I'm just, I don't know, I'm just very cognizant of that. I'm very, it's 
very much in the forefront of my mind, my mind, and, and uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And what are some of the ways in which we can serve those ancestors and serve not only their memory, but also their legacy? Make them proud. Mm -hmm. Because what they fought for was not just for us to have life. Mm -hmm. I don't believe they fought for just us to be alive. They fought for us to thrive more than they were thriving, Mm -hmm. to do more than what they were able to do. Mm-hmm. to accomplish more than what they were able to accomplish. Yes. That, to me, is the purpose of their sacrifice. Mm-hmm. So if we are simply just being alive but not thriving, then in my opinion, we are not honoring their sacrifice. Mm-hmm. We, are, we are still a result of their sacrifice, but we're not honoring that sacrifice. Mm-hmm. To honor it means that we must thrive, we must advance. Mm-hmm and take our lives to the next level that they could not accomplish even if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. That, to me, is what we should be doing. Definitely. I I wholeheartedly agree. And so when you say thriving, I'm just wondering just in terms of your definition of thriving. So is that in terms of economic empowerment? Is that in terms of governing our own communities, policing our own communities, and things of that nature, a spiritual uh, aspect of it as well? And what, yeah, what basically would you categorize your definition of thriving uh, as being defined by? Every single thing that you just mentioned. Mm -hmm. So yes, having the spiritual um, connection to the creator and having a um, financial understanding so that we can control our own destiny without the help of others, Mm -hmm. who many times those others have been staunchly against us. Yes. having, Having the ability to create our own destiny Mm -hmm. having the ability to police our own communities Mm -hmm. and to, yeah, so that's what I mean by thrive. Okay. All of those things. To be able to tell our own narrative, to Mm -hmm. be able to speak truth about our own history and our own present contributions, to be able to put into um, fruition the visions of where we want to go in the future. Mm-hmm. All of these things is what I mean personally when I say thrive. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I definitely support uh, what you're putting forward there as well. Um, I I think that we do need to thrive in all those different aspects. Now, when it comes to the artist and the creative, how can the artist or what role does the artist and the creative play with regard to making sure that our communities continue to thrive? To me, art is the heartbeat of a community. Mm-hmm. So to me, we actually are the leaders of the community that we pump, just like the heart does, we mm-hmm. pump the, the blood into the community and, and help the community to stay alive. When our art is not reflective of honoring our ancestors, moving us forward, mm-hmm. then it can also cause us to be ill. Mm-hmm. Our art can also cause us to be sick. It can cause us to go backwards mm-hmm. to ultimately die. Mm-hmm. Um, art is so extremely important to any community, any nation, any civilization. From now all the way to the beginnings of time, art has been, many, in many ways, the only thing that sustains yes. 
so important. And one of the things that I talk about more than other topics is how important our art is yes. to our people mm-hmm. and how we need to start to use art as a tool for freedom and mm-hmm. as a tool for emancipation of the numerous things that we have been enslaved by. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because as you're talking, I'm thinking about what you're doing as far as the, in the community is concerned with making sure that the next generation, especially creatives and artists, are equipped with the tools that they need to navigate an industry that is very perilous. And I was really inspired to read about what you're doing as far as the Victory Spot and um, that whole process and that program. Could you just talk a little bit about the Victory Spot as well as what you think the ramifications will be five, 10, 15 years from now uh, when the artists start to start to come out and, and you know start to be very successful? Yeah, so obviously I've been in the entertainment industry for 30 years. Yes. So I've seen how detrimental artist that is not guided, an artist that has no sense of purpose or mm-hmm. intentionality, mm-hmm. how detrimental that can be, not only to that artist, but to our community at large, which is what I was just talking to a, a second ago. Yes. And unfortunately to that artist, many of them will decay. Many of them, most artists will not make it. Most artists will never make a living from their art. And so many of them will suffer from deep depression, some mm-hmm. of them suicide, mm-hmm. others will be used and abused in such ways from the industry of art that they're in, whether it's music or television or various different types of art. Um, they will be, in many instances, used and abused in such a way that they will lose their sense of pride and self-esteem. So my wife and I haven't seen this mm-hmm. just time and time again. My wife actually came up with the idea, we should start a school mm-hmm. and where, where we can equip artists to fight, as you just said, navigate this minefield mm-hmm. of dangers and pitfalls that unfortunately do exist in, the, in, in these industries. Mm-hmm. And so we started it five and a half years ago, and it's, it's been going really well. I mean, the pandemic set us off. Mm-hmm. And we're definitely learning a lot on how to navigate the pandemic, but we've been going five and a half years and training artists. And my whole reason for doing that was just so that I wasn't just talking about it, but I was doing something about it. Yes, action. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, action. And that was the reason that we started it. Yeah, that's really, really inspiring because a lot of people, you know, they talk about it, you know, self-empowerment and things of that nature. But you, as well as your wife, Yolanda, are actually doing something about it. Now, just in terms of empowering young people and artists that are coming up, what are some of the things that you think would be beneficial? Is it something as um, simple as trying to create your own platform so in that way you can kind of guide your own career rather than depending on the machinery of a large corporation? Is it more mentorship maybe at those large corporations by other artists that can do what you're doing in terms of mentoring those particular individuals? 
Um, or is it a multi-pronged approach, do you think, to really empower young people that are coming in that have remarkable talent and obviously a gift to give, but may not necessarily either have, you know, the business acumen or the understanding of the industry like you have, you know, to prevent them from making the wrong decisions? It is a multi-pronged approach, bro. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, and even to add to the prongs that you just mentioned, because I agree with all of those, is some people aren't yet refined in their talent. Mm. Some are actually still learning their talent. That's so true, yeah. To, pro- to provide that as well. And as far as the platform, you know, we as a people do need our own platform mm-hmm. where we are able to express ourselves freely able to put forth progressive and visionary agendas that help our people to grow and to be nurtured and loved the way we deserve to be. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, um, not everyone has business acumen on how to do that. So mm-hmm. training in all of the areas, mm-hmm. you know, because Obviously, it's not easy to create a Facebook. It's not easy to create. And even if it is easy to create the actual mechanics of a Facebook, it's not easy to get it in everyone's hands and to, that everybody knows that it exists and so mm-hmm. on and so forth. So it's another thing that I see with us as a people. I see so many of us that have created wonderful things but mm-hmm. don't have the financial backing to keep it going. That's right, yeah. They don't have the you know team that has all the technical skills to make it run smoothly. They mm-hmm. don't have the people that can respond to, to uh, people's complaints or people's problems, mm-hmm. you know, troubleshooting. Yes. So these are some of the issues that we as a people have, within, which then brings us back to the financial piece we talked about earlier, Yes. where we as a people do need to be able to have a more secure financial footing as a people across the entire diaspora, not just in America, but in Africa and the Caribbean and and, and Brazil and so on and so forth, we have got to be able to rise our overall financial realities to a little bit of a higher level so that we can support one another. So that if you're a genius that created an app, I can then support your genius. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, what happens with so many of us is even if we have geniuses among us that know how to create a great app, they are not able to sustain it like the ways I was just talking about. Yeah. So a lot of those apps just end up in the app desert and and no one uses them because they don't even know that they exist. They exist. That's the, so those are some of the obstacles that we still have to overcome. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because as you're talking as well, I'm thinking about uh, even something as... Um, vital as getting financial backing. So, you know, VCs and venture capitalists and the type of help that they can actually extend. And I was looking at this specific organization that's focused on empowering uh, companies that are run by women as well as people of color with you know African communities and other communities called Harlem Capital. And what they're really doing is going after this hole that exists for individuals, like you said, that have you know the business acumen or are coachable in terms of having that type of genius to really make an impact on society. So I do agree that it definitely is a, a multi-pronged approach. Um, another thing you mentioned that was really interesting is just the tie between you know North America as well as Africa and empowering those communities uh, between those two different continents. And so I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about the African continental free trade area uh, that was just announced, I think, a couple of weeks ago. What, to 
tell me about it. Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, African free trade area. Yeah, so basically, what it'll do, it'll it'll take away a lot of the barriers just in terms of tariffs and things of that nature. And what they're saying is basically they're expecting a rise of income for about you know seven percent or like around four hundred twenty to four hundred fifty billion dollars. Um, and also, you know, empowering women as well, because a lot of the businesses are, well, entrepreneurial uh, ventures are, are run by women on the continent, as you know, from visiting the continent. Um, and really what's really empowering is the, the president of Ghana was saying that it'll actually now start to help Africa wean off of the external economic support that it's been receiving and create a more self-sustained entity, which could serve as a model for other continents as well, just in terms of breaking down barriers and and joining, you know, different communities and different countries. Well, I I didn't know about that, but I'm 100% excited at that. <laughs> I'm excited about that because that is what we desperately have needed. Yes. And we need to, as an African diaspora, need to create our own allies that we can rely on. And yes. We can utilized to get our various ventures and dreams off the ground financially. So yeah, I definitely believe that it's bigger than just those in North America. It's all throughout the entire diaspora. Mm -hmm. So many of us from across the globe are facing very, very similar struggles. Yes. You know, there's unique struggles as well, but there's a lot of similarities in these struggles too. And Mm -hmm. that's where I think we can unite. Yes, I definitely think so. And one of the things that, um, you know, that I was really inspired by when I was looking at the, some of the work that you were doing is that movie that you'd created, uh, 16 Bars, that documentary. And it just reminded me of that when you said that there's certain struggles that we're all facing. And I'm, just, I'm wondering what the the backstory of that particular project was. And if you could just explain a little bit of it, you know, to our listeners, because a lot of the people that listen to the podcast are interested in community involvement. Yeah. I watched a documentary on CNN where there was a daddy's daughter's stand, mm-hmm. and it was inside of a jail where there was balloons and streamers and, and all of this festive stuff, cakes, and these little beautiful black kids mm-hmm. were able to spend, our daughters actually were able to spend time with their fathers who were presently incarcerated. Mm-hmm. And I, when I saw the documentary, I was moved to and my manager was moved too. We talked to each other, and he said, man, whoever the sheriff is of this particular jail really has a vision for how to empower these young daughters and have a closer relationship with their father Mm -hmm. who are presently incarcerated and bring more of a humanity to these men who are behind bars for whatever reason. And so... Um, we contacted that sheriff because he had this vision and he was, he had more of a progressive program going on in that particular jail. Mm -hmm. He was in Richmond, Virginia. We, as soon as we talked to him, he was fired up about the idea, which I I brought to him of me coming to his jail to do music with inmates and documenting this whole process. Yes. He was extremely excited about it. Wow. And we stayed in contact trying to work out the details because I wanted to release music based on the documentary of these people that were incarcerated doing music and getting that music out to the world. Mm-hmm. And 
So we had to work through a lot of uh, red tape, as they say. I would imagine, To try yeah. to get this to become a reality. Because mm-hmm. whenever someone creates material in jail or prison, it's owned by the state. Oh, that wow, okay. doesn't have rights to it. Oh. And so we had to work around that. Like, yes. how can you... How can we make this to where they can get money from it, we mm-hmm. can release it, mm-hmm. and they get the money from it, even though they were incarcerated as they were creating it? Yes. So we got it. We worked out a way to get around that, and we did the documentary, and um, that's sixteen bar, and it's a, it's probably one of the most important works I've ever done, and mm-hmm. um, I'm very proud of it. Very proud. Yeah, I mean it's amazing. And as I was looking at it, I was just thinking about the way in which you know, you're able to identify those individuals that you featured in the film, but also beyond that, how you were inspired to make music out of that situation. Because, you know, for a lot of us, I think the purpose of music, it's a very cathartic experience. It's a way to um, release emotion. It's a way to share emotion. And so to give those inmates the ability to do that in an environment where you know, they are not permitted to express emotion. They're told exactly what to do, when to do it, and they live such a regimented lifestyle. And, you know, creativity being such an uncontrollable force, I just thought it was a very powerful combination of, you know, emotion, intention, positivity under such extreme circumstances. Exactly right. And these men, and we worked with some women, they didn't end up in the film for various reasons. But oh, okay. We, these men and women um, that, that I worked with, and I say we, it was me and my team. I had a team of, of filmmakers mm-hmm. that came with me. And working with them was cathartic for them. It gave them a sense of worth, yes. a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. And now the world, I mean, so many people around the world know who this film revolves. It ends up revolving around four men. Mm-hmm. And so many people around the world knows these four men now and it has helped their lives in so many ways like it's it's, more it's incredible ways than I get down. yeah and and how are they doing now how are those individuals doing at this point well their story is still being written yes and you know each one of them are doing different levels of of good you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. so anthony Unfortunately, has been in and out of prison. Um, in the film, he was released from prison mm-hmm. and our jail, and he's been back in, and he's been uh, released again. So, okay. Um, Devante was uh, released during the film and was put back in again, mm-hmm. and um, and that's unfortunate. Teddy yes, that's important. Yeah. Has never gone back. Good. Uh, Teddy is one of the other members. He's never gone back. Mm. And he actually has struggled with chemical, you know, drug addiction. Yeah. And it's been an on and off thing, but mm-hmm. he is continuing to push forward. And he's had a lot of victories, and I'm really proud good. of him. Good. Good, good, good. And then, um, um, uh, Garland. Thank you, Garland Carr. <laughs> That's a great, great part. Garland Carr is um, set to be released soon. So oh, that's amazing. Out in 2024. 20, okay. 2024. Yeah. That's amazing. And for this project, how were you able to pull together the funding for it? We, we self-funded. 
Oh, you self-funded everything. Wow. Okay. And not just me, it was me and my team. Mm-hmm. Um, we all self-funded it, and then we ended up getting it um, picked up by numerous um, streaming channels. Yeah, but not only that, so, you, you were selected for a lot of uh, film festivals. I was on the website, and I was really impressed. Miami and New York, and th- there were so many selections. Because normally when you see a documentary, there's you know maybe four or five that they'll feature, but... You know, when you go to the site, there's actually a stream at the bottom, like maybe 10 or 12, and you actually have to scroll past the the edge of the border to see exactly how many um, film festivals you yeah. were selected for. Yeah, it's amazing. It really... So, we, what? we were really blessed. Yeah. We were really blessed. Yeah. I mean, we had well over 20 or more film festivals, but we also won a lot of awards. At yes, the at the film. Yeah, that's right. And then um, we've had great response. I mean... There's been some audiences where you can hear a pin drop at the end of the film, people mm-hmm. just teary-eyed because of how much it moved them. And and it's definitely a documentary people should watch. Yeah, I'm, I'm recommending it at 100%. And why do you think the documentary um, has resonated so deeply with all those audiences? I think the main thing is, is that so many people are dealing with this issue of mass incarceration personally. Mm-hmm. There's so many families that have been destroyed yeah. by the laws that make it very easy for people to get incarcerated, the laws that make it extremely hard for you to get out of that system once you are released. Mm-hmm. The, the probationary laws are so strict and weird that many people go back in. Mm-hmm. The three strikes laws, there's just numerous things that make so many families affected by this. And we tend to ask, like when I go to the screenings, I tend to ask people at the screening, how many of you have someone in your immediate family or your extended family mm-hmm. that is presently incarcerated? Mm-hmm. And the general consensus is 80%, 70% of people raise their hand. Wow. So that's why I think this movie resonates because so many people are affected by it. And as far as giving those inmates a voice, because you mentioned... Um, just a few moments ago about, you know, it's, it's a very complicated system and recidivism actually uh, ends up going up when the people coming out. So do you think a part of that is that there isn't really a comprehensive mechanism to reintroduce uh, people who have served their time into the communities um, as far as, you know, education, job support? There are certain organizations in different states that will specifically you know, hire people that have a sort of um, that type of a past. But usually to reintroduce someone, for example, that had uh, some type of involvement with incarceration who wants now to demonstrate that they're, want, you know, contributing to society, it's difficult for them to get, you know, certain kind of jobs or, or, or certain kind of even housing as well. So do you think then that there needs to be an approach where all of that, is looked at as far as housing, job support, and even just societal attitudes as far as these individuals coming back into society? Yes, to all of what you just said. There is a lot of that going on more than people think. And what is the even extra level of complexity with this issue is some people are uh, not taught character Mm -hmm. and so even if they get out and 
even if they get a job, so many people who are incarcerated have to now learn character to stick to the job. Mm -hmm. And so many, and and this is why um, so many others don't have family support Mm -hmm. to help them stay straight. Unfortunately, since the crack era, there's been a lot of dysfunction that has become very normalized in a lot of our communities Mm -hmm. to where even their own mothers and fathers, those that are incarcerated, are also not equipped. They also are still learning character on their journey. They're not equipped to be able to help their sons or daughters that are getting out. Mm -hmm. A lot of the neighborhoods that we encounter have a normalization of certain dysfunction, whether it be Mm. single-parent households, whether it be households run by grandmothers and grandfathers, not the parents at all, Mm -hmm. whether it be uh, the type of music that they're listening to, whether it be the type of entertainment that they're consuming, whether it be the type of food they're eating, whether... So, yes, education, all of these things are deeply important. But one of the reasons I, I speak so much about what the music is, the entertainment, the art that we are giving our people, it is not many times nurturing and nourishing. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, and, and what what studies have shown is that, especially among black people, entertainment and art play a way bigger role in our community. Many people don't have a religious um, affiliation that they're deeply involved with. So a lot of people are very much reliant on the music to help determine their worldview, their mm-hmm. self-view, mm-hmm. and their life trajectory. Yes. And so if you get someone coming out of prison, but their norm is some of the same things that got them into prison, and they go back to a community where some of those people have the same norm, then they're destined to go right back in. And mm-hmm. even worse, some of them will feel that that is normal. That is what is supposed to happen. Many of their relatives have been in and out and in and out. They have been in and out. If you saw the film, Teddy himself said, I've been in and out of these correctional facilities since I was a child. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he said, I used to go right across the street to that juvenile detention center. Then I came over here. Then I went over there. Mm -hmm. Anthony, if you remember Anthony in the film, when he got out, he kissed the ground because he was happy to be free. Yeah. But he did not know what he was going to do. He said, I know I'm going to walk down the block and make a left. And from there, I don't know where I'm going to go. Mm. But what that says is that the family structure was so deteriorated by then that he couldn't go there. Yeah. The extended family structure was not viable for him. The neighborhood was viable, but only for further destructive behavior, not mm-hmm. behavior that's going to, exactly, not behavior that's going to enrich him and take him in another direction. So that's what we're facing in so many of our communities, and that's the ugly truth that we've got to start to see. If mm-hmm. someone comes out and they are not personally determined to change their life, they are more likely that they're just going to go right back in. They've got to have a certain personal, like, they got to be sick and tired of being sick and tired. They've got to be at their rock bottom to where they're determined to change their their world. And one of the things that I've seen, I'm sorry I'm being so long-winded on this. No, no, please go on, please go on. And it's not simple. I think so many people want to make it simple. It's really not. Wow, system Mm -hmm. would just do this. 
yeah. or if, you know, if we could just get more funding for that. And it's not, those are great things, and I applaud those things, but those aren't, it goes deeper than that. So mm-hmm. anyway, um, you know, we've got to get to a place as well where we are helping people to change location mm-hmm. where, where they were present, I mean, where they used to be, to literally live in a whole other area if indeed they are willing to change their life and they really are fed up with the lives that they were previously living. They've mm-hmm. got to get into all new environments where they can truly be nurtured and thriving. And uh, it's so we have a lot of work to do. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not a it's not a simple solution. That's what I've noticed. Yeah, and it and I'm thinking because I've read certain things about you know organizations that are are trying to to help as far as funding and, and things of that nature. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts would be on developing programs, as you're saying, in these other neighborhoods, in these nurturing communities. So, for example, instead of um, you know having a fund that will for you know buy clothes or buy shoes or, or anything like that, uh, you're raising money actually to fund. Uh, an inmate or prior, a former inmate's uh, transition into a new community where um, instead of, you know, the prison system getting, say, you know, uh, $200,000 or $500,000, um, that money could actually be diverted into a program that will, as you're saying, you know, nurture that particular individual that's coming out, give them job training, uh, maybe some some therapy, uh, you know, maybe and financial support so they can get up on their feet and not have to feel that, you know, they're going to be, um, their backs are against the wall just in terms of the amount of options that they have. I think that's 100% a great program. And yes, I personally agree with having that type of financial redirection. Mm-hmm. And, and that goes, and that speaks to what so many people talk about, which is the anti-incarceration movement. Mm-hmm. Um, an anti-policing movement where yeah. a lot of the funds that's presently going to policing and presently going to incarceration mm-hmm. can instead be used for these types of things that help people to reform or to change or whatever the scenarios that they're facing to help them do that and get on their feet. So I, I, I applaud all of those different movements. Yeah, yeah, I think they're extremely, extremely important. Um, and, you know, I was also just looking at the, and obviously we're all, you know, viewers of the news and everything that's happening. And uh, I was really, and a lot of people too, were disturbed by, you know, the insurrection that happened uh, in the United States. And it actually reminded me of something that happened in California that actually, you know, really displays the discrepancies between how different communities are policed. You know, where you have, for example, like in 1967, where the Black Panthers are coming to the, uh, I think it was California state legislature, bearing arms, you know, they get stopped, they get harassed. Uh, But not only that, they passed a law against it, where in, in the history of the United States, there's only been one time where the NRA has actually supported gun legislation for gun control, and that was for you know, people like, you know, Black Panthers to be disarmed. Whereas when you turn on the news and you're watching the insurrection and you sort of wonder, you know, what the, what's going on, you know, as far as that's concerned, because, you know, uh, obviously one group was just trying to articulate their rights, whereas the other group, you know, was definitely trying to articulate a, 
a point of view that's very destructive. And so I just wanted to get your thoughts, just not in terms of, you know, what you think about the quote unquote insurrection, but also what you think about gun legislation that it applies to the African-American community and people of color, uh, or as it uh, applies to other communities. I don't know if you've heard my new single. It's called uh, A Different World. Yes, I have. It's, I yeah, it's dope. Yeah, I literally addressed the whole insurrection. And I addressed the inequalities that are evident historically and present day Yeah. when it comes to justice, period, mm-hmm. and how it applies to the scenario that happened in the Capitol compared to what has happened with blacks back, you know, the MOVE organization in Philadelphia or the Black Panthers throughout this nation where we were literally murdered for bearing arms. Mm -hmm. And that same practice is happening, you know, throughout this nation right now where black men and women are armed and instead of being treated with respect, they're treated like criminals. And they have the right to bear these arms. Whereas when whites who are actually doing literal criminal vile activities are treated with kid gloves, nobody but one woman was shot. And she was shot at the last possible moment that you could shoot someone. I mean, she was literally about to crawl through a window knowing that there was a gun there, being warned not to do it. She was about to crawl through the window where a lot of the legislators were. Well, she was the only one shot out of 2,000 people were just spreading feces, urine, mm-hmm. beating up cops. I mean, literally as far as you can get. And no one else was shot and killed, uh, at least that I know of, from that insurrection party. Yeah. Uh, there was a police officer killed, beaten to death, others that committed suicide. I mean, just... It's, it's atrocious. Reality and, and an atrocious example of white supremacy, meaning because these people were white, because, and I mean, it goes, it goes beyond how they were treated that day. It goes to the fact that security wasn't even an issue mm-hmm. for this, for this uh, January 6th uh, vote count. Uh, I mean, electoral college count ceremony. There was not even security because it was white people that were protesting as opposed to black people. Mm-hmm. Whereas black people who protest for legitimate injustices, there's security and tanks and the whole full nine yards, whereas this one, there was no security. And not only that, some people are suspected to have helped the mob get into the office and tell them where the legislators were. So, I mean, some people on the staff within the building, whether it was police officers or whether it was fellow um, Congress people or what happened. So, I mean, the level of white supremacy is it's ingrained and it's very high the level mm-hmm. of white supremacy in our nation today, and that just ripped the bandaid off it, so everyone who wants to see could see. Yeah, I think right now is a very interesting time because, as you were saying, that there is no way to hide the the way in which different communities are, are treated, and I think a lot more people are being, you know. Uh, forced to actually see the reality of, of what communities, you know, like ours have been facing for a very, very long time. And speaking of that, you know, I was reading just about your your background, and it was interesting for me to find out that both of your parents actually were involved in the civil rights movement. And um, I was thinking that it probably, those types of discussions and, and those types of 
uh, gatherings uh, would somehow inform not only your approach to art, but also your outlook just in terms of you know, serving the community as well as your role as a leader within that community. So I'm just wondering, what were some salient conversations or lessons that you learned from your, from your mother and father um, growing up uh, in uh, not Minneapolis, but um, yeah, Milwaukee. Milwaukee, yeah, growing up in Milwaukee, yeah. Yeah. My parents um, led mostly by example, mm-hmm. but they constantly instilled in my brother and I, and my adopted brother too, this mm-hmm. the reality that we are in control of our destiny yes. as people. Mm-hmm. That we have to tell our own story, we have to create our own businesses, we have to be able to sustain ourselves and even help ourselves thrive as a people or else we will be left to the will or the whims of, of others. And so um, that's probably the biggest thing, the overarching thing that they taught me. Mm-hmm. And I've been striving to live that out ever since. And my, both of my parents are still alive. My brother yes. has passed away. Well, both, both of my brothers have passed away. Mm-hmm. My adopted brother and my biological brother. Mm-hmm. But, um, that, I think, at the end of the day, is one of the biggest things that they taught. But they taught so many lessons. And they still do. I mean, even to this day, they still teach a lot. But, but really, a love for community mm-hmm. and a sense of pride in helping the community personally, like getting involved. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that both of your parents were entrepreneurs as well. Your dad owning a, a bar and your mom owning the and still does the largest um, black-owned newspaper in in Milwaukee. So I'm just wondering, you know, what lessons did they impart just with regards to setting up your own organization and not having to depend on external help um, for your economic well-being? I mean, that's definitely the reason I've done so many, so many of the moves that I've done. Mm-hmm. So. Like the victory spot is because my mother and father owned numerous businesses. Yes. And I saw how it not only sustained us as a family, but it sustains many other families, black yes. families' lives, mm-hmm. and it encourages the community. So they they had sort of a three pronged um, attack in a sense. And one was to obviously provide for our own family through business, but the second was to be able to support others by hiring in that business mm-hmm. and hiring people in our community. And then third was to do the type of business that encourages the community somehow. Yes. So those types of things to me was, um, you know, a big deal that they passed down early on. Yeah, d- definitely. And your newest album, uh, I think, is amazing. And de- definitely everyone should go and, and cop it. Um, and there's a lot of interesting things and themes that you introduce on your album. So, you know, back down to me, you know, definitely talking about white supremacy and over policing. Um, one of the lines that really stands out to me is you can you can't say you're woke when you don't know the recipe. Um, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on woke culture. Um, I respect it. Yeah. Uh, I think that it's good for people to be woke, uh, conscious. I mean, back in our days, we used to call it conscious. Yeah. Um, in this day and age, 
if they would call it, you know, people call it woke. Woke, yeah. I think that it's not, it's not wide enough. Mm-hmm. So in other words, what it tends to focus on, what woke tends to focus on, is making sure you expose the evils of society. So if, if a police officer abused somebody, make sure we're filming that. Mm-hmm. If, if a corporation is doing something that was racist or called someone in its corporation a nigger, make sure you expose that. Mm-hmm. And I think all of that is good. It helps, it helps on numerous levels. It helps us to recognize that we're in a war, um, as a people, that we're in a war, and there is enemies in this war, and it is mm-hmm. people that are racist, people that feel that whites are supreme and that everyone else is under. There is a war going on, so it helps us to keep that in mind, and it also helps to inform the entire world of the injustices that for quite a long time before technology, they were able to ignore it. They were able to to feel like, oh, it's just us. We're being hypersensitive. We're, mm-hmm. you know, this is not really actually going on. You're just being emotional, mm-hmm. you know. And now you can't deny it because it's on tape and all these things are happening. So I think that that part of the woke movement is still great. Uh, marching is great. It, it helps people to galvanize. It helps people to recognize the importance of issues that are, that are hitting us. Where I don't think it hits enough is self-critique. Mm-hmm. Critiquing our own community. Mm-hmm. Making sure that we are aware of the cancers that, that are inside our own body as mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's what I think we're we, we sort of stopped at that. We don't tend to talk a lot about the toxicities that are that are self um, imposed on us. Mm-hmm. And we we talk about it a little bit. Like for instance, you know, uh, apparently Magda Stallion something happened with her last night, or maybe a couple nights ago. And you know, there's this narrative of men not beating on women and black women making sure that we respect our black women. I love all of that. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we, we simultaneously celebrate so many things that degrade black women. So it's this mixed message. Mm-hmm. This message of, yeah, well, uplift the black woman. Make sure the black woman is loved. And then at the same time, celebrating songs that say, bitch, ho, dropped out, you know, suck my dick. I mean, just all these, this stuff that's just so, so straightforward defiling the sacredity of our black women mm-hmm. and music that is marketed towards young kids. Mm-hmm, yeah. We may not want to admit it. We know that there's stickers that say for adults only. We also know that that's irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Anyone that has family members that are of a younger age know that they all know these artists. They all know these lyrics. Mm-hmm. This is in their high schools, their, their middle schools, their grade schools. This music is prevalent. So mm-hmm. then people say, well, it's up to the parents to do it, not anybody else. And that's, Again, that it's 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 counteractive. It's, it's counteractive because you can say it's up to parents, but we already know that too many of our households have single parent households, mm-hmm. and we know that those parents have to work. And yeah. if they work to work, we would call them lazy. We would call them some other name. So they are working. Their children have to be. You know, there is going to be times when any parent, no matter how good they are, is going to have to rely on society to give them some type of worldview as well. And it's always been this way. People mm-hmm. wanted to, people defend some of our toxicities and say that it's up to the parents, but the truth of the matter is pop culture and society has always moved people, not just in black communities, but all communities. That's right. It's always been that way. That's right. So we try to ignore it because we don't want to take accountability for the aspects that we are imposing upon ourselves 
Mm-hmm. We've got to deal with that, or else you can have all the right, you know, things going on outside of your body. But if your body is ill on the inside, you still will. Your demise is still coming. Yeah, so you've definitely. You've got to be able to deal with the stuff that we're that we're facing inside of our community too. So mm-hmm. that's what I think woke needs to include. Yes, and do you think though that? A more balanced approach just in terms of the imagery and the messaging would also help as well, because I can't um, help but think about, you know, the 90s and how it was such a, a renaissance time with regard to different aspects of music, because not only did you have, you know, one aspect of hip hop, but you also had another aspect of hip hop. And, you know, there were various ways in which you could get access to different types of narratives and different types of images and all of it was valid so it wasn't that you if you like to read or if you like uh, to you know re- uh, revel in african culture and things like that you weren't called out because you were listening to like tribe called quest you were listening to africa and bambada you know whereas if you wanted just to you know focus on fashion and sneakers you were listening to uh, certain other types of music and all of it was valid and to be an artist at that particular time, as you know, uh, you being one of the largest, is that, you know, not only did you have to be creative and artistic, but you also had to be uh, connected uh, emotionally as well as, as well as physically in terms of what you were talking about. So there was this idea of, you know, faking the funk and, and being real. And do, do you think that the departure of that also is something that is very detrimental in terms of the music that we're listening to now because you know to me it seems very monolithic right there's one way in which to be successful really successful in in music um and i think that arrested development one of the great things and one of the gifts that you gave to society is you provided an example by which you know, you could point to your group and say, I don't necessarily have to be like this. I can be myself and express myself. And then, you know, uh, I'll, you know, I can be successful. There's a possibility for me to be successful. So do you think that the lack of full representation in terms of the voices that exist within our community is also a problem? Not only do I think it's a problem, that's a great question, by the way. Mm -hmm. I think it's paramount. It's paramount. Mm-hmm. It is huge. Yeah. And as I said earlier in this interview, many of our people get our worldview from our culture. Mm-hmm. So if our culture is monolithic, as you stated, and I agree with that, then our worldview is monolithic. Mm-hmm. Our ability to thrive is monolithic. Our even it's one thing to like you you can only achieve as much as you can believe or even dream about. Yes. If you're only dreaming about a certain level but not higher than that, then mm-hmm. you, can no, you can't get higher than that. Mm-hmm. The highest right. you can possibly get is what you dream about. That's right. We only dream about strip clubs and bitches and hoes and mm. money and bags. And, yeah. And then you can't get above that. Yeah. So my point is, is that we've got to be able to express our entire community. And I agree, I don't think that it needs to be eliminated. I'm not saying that trap music or mm-hmm. gay music or whatever you want to call it should be eliminated. No. no it is part of our culture. Mm-hmm. It is expression. But whenever it becomes so monolithic as it is today, then it is literally cutting people short. It's truncating their dreams. It's mm-hmm. truncating people's That's right. possibilities. Mm-hmm. And going back to the prison system, if someone gets out 
and they only have this truncated version of what success or life success is, then that's as much as they can even expect to achieve. So yes, mm-hmm. the music, to go back to the music, not just the music, the movies, movies yeah. the books, the all the different ways that we express ourselves through art. Mm-hmm. Um, all of it has to be way more diverse. And I have a documentary, a mini documentary that I did on YouTube called uh, Hoodwinked and subtitled The Nigga Factor. Hoodwinked, okay, yes. And uh, I definitely encourage you to look at that because I deal with that issue. It's on my YouTube page. You can just type in The Nigga with a A, not an E-R, The Nigga Factory. Okay. And um, by, by speech. And your listeners and everybody, I'd love for you to check it out. Yeah, definitely. I'll include that in the show notes as well. Um, and one of the things actually that really inspired me is the TED talk you gave about your sacred serial number. I found it to be extremely powerful and I'll link to that as well in the show notes, but just talk to us a little bit about your approach and how you came up with the concept of um, my, you know, your sacred serial number. Yeah, I've, I've long believed that each of us are important mm-hmm. before we are given a title of a job or before we are given a class that we're in, whether low class, upper class, middle class, rich, poor, black, white, we're all sacred. We all are destined to do something great here if we could tap into what that is. And so mm-hmm. this TED Talk that I did, it's called Sacred Serial Number, that mm-hmm. each of us have this particular purpose that we are sent to this realm to accomplish. Yes. And... If we can tap into that, we can rise way above some of the things that are that are our obstacles. So that's what I'm. That's what I address in this TED talk, and I include my own journey a lot in this mm-hmm. TED talk. And I talk about how I had to find my own sacred serial number and strive to navigate this world, knowing that I have something unique. Meaning, because serial numbers are unique, so mm-hmm. uh, having something that I bring to this world and that you. And every one of the listeners that are listening now are to bring to this world that is unique, not a carbon copy of someone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, de- I definitely agree, and I found it to be extremely powerful. Um, and one unique experience that you had as well, and I was really interested to find this out because it's a commonality that we have, is that, um, you know, there's a huge following that you have in Japan. Uh, so talk to us a little bit about the way in which you discovered that you had a huge following in Japan and your albums are being very, very successful and well-received over there. Uh, and what your experience has been as far as interacting with fans over there as well as touring over there as well. Well, Japan has been a lifesaver for me. Yes. I, I went to Japan with Arrested Development in 90, I want to say 93 or 4. Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. Yeah. And we had a great time. And the rest of development broke up in 95. I released my first solo album in 96. Mm-hmm. And it did horribly. And I was extremely depressed. Mm-hmm. I had looked, I was, um, I used to read Billboard magazine a lot to try to see what position my songs were on the charts. Yes. And so I had a single out as a solo artist called Like Marvin Gaye Said. Yes. And... I, I was going to the charts in America, and it was way at the bottom. It was like mm. somewhere around 89 or 90. Mm-hmm. So I was really, uh, you know, depressed about that. And I would go to different charts in different countries. Well, I went to the chart in Japan, and I was looking down at the bottom to see 
where I was, and I wasn't there. And then I looked at the top <laughs> just for the heck of it. Yeah. And number one on the wow. my single at yep. the time when I was doing horribly with sales. And so I told, I called, I immediately called my manager, and I was like, "Hey, my song is number one." And not only was it number one, it had been number one for seven, seven weeks, weeks. Yeah. And I didn't know it. Yeah. And so I just called him and said, we got to do something about this. So we booked the tour. I got uh, to Japan, and it was the most, like, the biggest life booster that I could have ever asked for. I was so grateful. Mm -hmm. They were in love with this album. And I started releasing music to Japan only from that point on for Mm -hmm. quite a while because they were just so supportive, so in love with the music. And as an artist, that's what you hope. That's what you want, you hope yeah. That your music can get, that people get where you're coming from and that they really try to relate to it. And they were. Even though there's a huge cultural and language barrier, they studied the lyrics, translated them, mm-hmm. understood them all, singing them back to me. Wow. And just an amazing place. And I'm so grateful to Japan. And to this day, well, obviously because of the COVID-19 pandemic, mm-hmm. we haven't been there, but... Usually, we would go there every year. Yeah. And even then, it's sold-out concerts. Amazing. Excited fans. Yeah. And it's just a place of refuge during my hardest times in my in my career. Your career, yeah, yeah. No, it's a fantastic country. I actually used to live there for a couple of years, so I, I know what you're... Where did you live? I, I lived in... Yeah, I lived in a place called Tsukuba, which is a... It's a suburb of Tokyo, um, okay. and, yeah, so back then you had to take you had to take a bus, but now there's a there's a train that goes down there. And one of the things actually that I really loved about Japan, you know, besides the culture and the people, is just the feeling of tranquility that I got when you visit shrines, when you visit temples, and this appreciation of what's sacred. It's a very interesting juxtaposition between modernity as well as legacy. So in the same yeah. day, you can see something that'll blow your mind technology, as far as technology is concerned. But then at the same time, you can have a really sort of reflective experience when you visit a temple or a shrine. So it's such an interesting you know, country. And I tell people... Dichotomy. Yeah, it is. And, um, you know, anybody that ever wants to go there, I just always am very fervent about encouraging them to do so because it's it's a very spiritual type of experience. And I feel like you're not the same person when you come back from Japan as you were when you actually went there. And that's something that I really appreciate about that country. And I'm also interested to find out where is your favorite place in Japan or what are some of the experiences that you had that have really been transformative while you were there? Okay. But I will say one thing that's among the many. Mm-hmm. So I had friends there that um, had a little, they had a daughter who was five years old. Oh, nice. She was in um, kindergarten. Mm-hmm. And I went to their house and we were hanging out. And as you well know, in, in, in Japan, generally speaking, the houses are very small. Mm-hmm, yeah. And they, they utilize every little bit of space <laughs> in the house. Yeah, yeah they do. And um, so we were hanging out, having breakfast. And they sent their daughter out the door to go to school. And she was, I don't know, maybe six or seven, I'm not sure, five or six, seven, somewhere in there. And they sent her out by herself. And they said, you know, see you when you get home, baby, or, you know, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And there was no bus that picked her up. She had to take the train to school. It was about a 30-minute or so travel from their house to school. 
school by herself. Yes. She was seven years old. Yeah, and they had right. no worries, or six years old, she had, they had no worries whatsoever. Yes. And that literally floored me. I was like, I have never seen anything like this since my very young youth mm-hmm. in America where there was this honor. And I've lost wallets, like, I've been on tour more times than I can count in Japan. And yes. There's times when I've lost my wallet, and I'll get it back. Someone yeah, that's right. Back. That's 100% mail, true. Like, at my hotel. Or, yep. Or, or it's like, it is the weirdest. And so what it, what it taught me, though, is that this idea that we have to have all these guns. Look, I have guns. I live in the country, so I'm, I'm complex when it comes to this gun issue, but I actually... I've known the statistic you talked about about guns earlier, about mm-hmm. the only times that they change the laws is to, to permit us from having guns. So I'm, I have a lot of thoughts about guns. But anyway, my point is, is that in this country, we have this idea that the only way you can live is with more guns, have guns, have, have this, have security here or there. And yet I've been and really spent substantial amounts of time in places where it's a totally different reality. I do not fear for my life in Japan. Mm-hmm. I don't fear that I'm going to get robbed. Mm-hmm. I don't fear that, you know, there's going to be a shootout or anything at this party or this event. I don't fear that. Mm-hmm. It's a totally different level of ease mm-hmm. compared to what I'm used to in America and mm-hmm. what we've even normalized in America. Mm-hmm. Where in America, you can have a, an elementary school where the young kids yeah. and are getting mowed down by yeah. a and mm-hmm. there won't be one law changed about guns whatsoever. Yeah, Not that's even one law. Mm-hmm. So it's a, just it's it's almost like we're living in the twilight zone sometimes. Um, when I compare it, and I've been other countries too, in Australia, where their last mass shooting, to my knowledge at least, was ten or twelve, fifteen years ago, and they took guns, uh, they bought guns back, and they they destroyed them. Yes, and people sold their guns and they haven't had guns by and large in Australia and to my knowledge they may have had something recent but even if they had some recent 10, 12, 15 years in between any type of mass shootings like that's unheard of whereas in America we just had one like a couple days ago Yeah. in America and I forget which city now and it doesn't even possibly make the headlines sometimes yeah. so it's just two different worlds yeah do you think then that it's mostly cultural um, that because I definitely understand what you're saying about Japan. I've had similar experiences where I've, you know, left wallets and then I go back a couple of hours later and it's still there. Um, but do you think then it's it's a cultural thing where it's so deeply embedded in the consciousness of America? It is included in, you know, your uh, the, the documentation there. So do you think it is? It's in the Constitution, obviously. So do you think that that is part and parcel? of the way in which that guns are viewed in terms of being a part of your culture. Um, Whereas I'm, I'm, what I I think I'm trying to say basically is because it's equated with liberty, do you think that it's very difficult to um, change people's perspectives as far as common sense gun law is concerned, um, given that it's a quote unquote right that every American citizen should have? definitely difficult. We've mm-hmm. seen that in real life. We've yes. seen that in the practice of how gun laws don't get enacted here and mm-hmm. how they go up as bills and get turned down every time. Yeah. So 
definitely see that that's difficult. I personally believe that the fervent nature of our country with gun laws is strictly because of racism. Mm. It's strictly because white people want to protect their whiteness. I don't think it has anything to do with, I don't know what race you are, obviously I'm just talking to you over the phone, mm. but I don't think it has anything to do with you as a possible black person, I'm assuming you're black, but uh, I don't assumption. think it has anything to do with other, <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, just by the nature of what we're talking about, <laughs> but like, you know, I don't think it has to do with protecting American citizens. I think it strictly has to do with protecting white citizens. In this mm. And that's why I think it's not able to change yet. And my hope is that in the, in the future, when uh, people of color are the, the majority of America, I'm hoping that we can start to have some common sense gun laws that will prevent senseless deaths and violence of children yeah, that's tragic when when that happens. Um, yeah, I think I think everybody when you know we saw that uh, you know kids, you know elementary school kids, and a lot of us were thinking that you know that would be the catalyst to really change things um, because everyone can get on the same page as far as preventing little children from getting killed in schools, I, I don't think it gets more, um, you know, basic than that. I mean, everyone feels that kids should be safe, right? So yeah, hopefully I'm, I'm with you as far as that's concerned as well. I hope that in the future, and I'm actually, you know, optimistic that, you know, it will happen um, because there'll come a point in society, there'll come a point in society th that people will look around and realize that, you know, it's just in everyone's own benefit to have these um, these laws in place. Well, I, I obviously, I hope you're right. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'm as optimistic as you in, in, in many ways, but <laughs> I hope you're right. And I'm okay. <laughs> um, so uh, as a last question, and, and uh, thank you so much for your time, I'm just wondering, um, you, you made such a, an interesting point at the end of your TED Talk, and basically you were saying that it isn't who we are that holds us back, but the people we think that we are not that uh, holds us back or arrests our, our development. So I'm just wondering, what can people do to become more of the people that they think they are rather than the people that they think they're not? I think that we have got to start changing the paradigm of what we're consuming. Mm -hmm. So if we're consuming um, constrictive material that tells us a very small version of who we can be, mm -hmm. then that is more than likely what we're going to end up being. Yeah. On the other hand, flip side of that is if we are consuming material, and I'm not just talking about music, I'm talking about anything we're consuming. If we're consuming material that tells us we can be more, we are sacred, we are people that can accomplish way more, we can, uh, we can accomplish the impossible quickly. Mm -hmm. It's not even, t it doesn't even have to take generations. It doesn't have to be the arc of goodness over millennia. It can be quickly, mm -hmm. but it, we have to believe it ourselves. And so to me, it's what you consume that changes your mindset. Okay. 
Well, thank you so much, Speech. This has been a fantastic conversation for for me. Uh, I you know I love your aesthetic. Uh, I love what you do as far as community involvement is concerned because you're not just talking about doing something; you're actually implementing things as well. And I think you're one of the few people that's actually a beacon in terms of encouraging others to be themselves and not to be a caricature or not to be a character in terms of, you know, in terms of wanting to be, you know, either respected or accepted. You can just be yourself uh, and you can be your higher self and also serve your community and put out really, really good art at the same time. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. I appreciate the interview. Okay. You too. Thank you once again to our special guest speech. We loved, loved having you on the show. Please support him. You can find him on Twitter at S-P-E-E-C-H underscore underscore. And you can also find him on IG S-P-E-E-C-H underscore underscore. Definitely support this brother. He's doing so much in the community to uplift others. You can watch his documentary called 16 Bars. It is amazing. You can also support him in terms of going to his shows. Fantastic. If you've seen it, any type of footage with him on stage, you know it's an electrifying experience. In addition to that, if you do have a young one, you can also send them to Victory Spot. I'll include this information in the show notes so you can refer to them there. And for everyone that's listening, he is such a down-to-earth person. I reached out to him on IG. He responded and we were able to make this happen. So for anybody that is unwilling to kind of step outside of their comfort zone for fear of they're too busy or they're too successful, definitely just give it a try. And more times than not, you'll be pleasantly surprised. Once again, Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next time. If you do have any suggestions as to the type of guests you would like for us to reach out to, more than happy to do that. Please send us a note. In addition to that, give us a rating because it helps with attracting more guests. Have a great day. And remember, these are our stories.